I stole a question this week. I stole it. Let me be straight up with you. I stole this question. I, I heard it, and I thought, that is the question. And I, I, I stole it because I wanted to share it with you. And it has to do with what God thinks. I just wonder, uh, when you think about what God thinks, when you think about when God thinks, what do you think God thinks about you? Did, did you get all that? When you think about when God thinks, what do you think God thinks about you? What do you think God thinks about when God thinks about you? What a great question! When I think about what God thinks about, what, what do I think that God thinks about me? What does God think about you? In fact, this morning, as we, as we look at this whole question about what in the world does God think about when God thinks about me, what God thinks about you, uh, we're going to find that, that some of the time uh, that we have influences in our life uh, that make us think that God thinks certain things about us. And, and then there's what Jesus says God thinks about when God thinks about us. You see, we have all sorts of things. Sociologists have actually done studies on this. Uh, they've, they've done studies in regards to, well, what is it that, that people think about when they think about what God thinks about them? And they've, and they've thought of some categories of how people have gone about responding about what they think God thinks about. And, and the truth of the matter is uh, that we tend to make God in our own image. You know what I mean? Uh, like, like, God is way up there and we're down here and we're trying to figure out what God thinks about when he thinks about us. And because we're trying to figure it out, we think that God must think of what I think of me when I think of me. Are you following? At least you're thinking. You see, I think that sometimes we think that God thinks of us the way we think of ourselves. How do you feel about yourself right now? How'd you come into church? What'd you think about your week? Was it a good week or a bad week? Did you have good days or bad days this week? I just wonder if, if perhaps it's possible uh, that one of the influencers of answering this question about what God thinks about when God thinks about us is what we think about us. 
You see, we all probably have some standard, right? Some, some moral, ethical, uh, we, we can base a good day or a bad day on something, right? Uh, maybe, maybe a good day is, is a good day because um, I didn't yell at the kids uh, this week and, uh, or that day and I was really good dad and I, I held the door open uh, for my bride and I, I loved her the way I should and my relationships were good and I, I uh, performed well at work and, and that was a good day. And, and I just wonder if when we think about having a good day, uh, what we think about what God thinks about us on a good day is, well, God must like me more on a good day than a bad day. Uh, like, like if I have a bad day, like if I came home and I kicked the dog and I yelled at my kids and I didn't, didn't hold the door open for my bride and, and I had a bad day at work and I got after someone that I shouldn't have gotten after and my attitude was terrible uh, and, and, I, and I watched some things that I shouldn't have watched and I did some things that I shouldn't have done, uh, watched and I said some things that I, that I probably regret later and I was angry in a way that I shouldn't have been that we go home and we think, that God must think of us that he doesn't like me anymore. Maybe, maybe you've been there. And maybe just subconsciously you've asked that question, what does God think about when God thinks about me? And, and we've thought about good days and bad days, and we've thought, well, well, surely my good days God must like me, and on my bad days, not, not so much. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe you've thought about that. That God must think of me, what I think of me, on my good days and my bad days. But what if that's not true? What if God doesn't think that way? Now, there's other influencers. Sociologists actually say it's not just about uh, what we think of ourselves. Uh, it's, it's what we think other people think of us. And, and here's how we measure how other people think of us. And some of us have, have maybe more of an issue with what other people think of us than other people in this room. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, we tend to think that God thinks of us uh, either how we think of us or how others think of us. And how others think of us is generally on a scale of my behavior, right? I mean, we are, we are kind of geared this way. I mean, from the, the time that we go to school, we are geared toward behavior, um, right? I mean, my, my kids come home... Um, my, my son Simon, I love him to death. He's four years old. Sometimes he comes home uh, and he tells about a kid uh, that had to go into the, um, oh, what do they call it now? Uh, uh, it's the quiet spot. The thinking space. The thinking space? What's the thinking space, bud? Oh, that's where you go when you get in trouble. You see, we have, we have been geared... From the time that we were three and four years old, um, to, to really gauge ourselves by what other people think of us, and that is really about our behavior, right? We go to school, we have to behave. We go to work, we have to behave. We go home, we have to behave. 
Everything is, is really kind of geared toward, uh, well, uh, do other people think that I'm behaving enough so that they can like me? And when I behave well, right, then other people will like me. When I do good, when I do all the right things for the right reasons at the right times, uh, and I behave in all the right ways, then other people will like me. And we tend, I think, to say the same thing about God. Again, we're, we kind of make God in our own image. What does God think about when God thinks about me, well, he must think of me what I think about me, and if he doesn't think about what I think about me, then he must think about what other people think about me, and that's entirely tied to my behavior. If I, I, if I behave well, then God likes me a whole lot, but if I'm not behaving well, uh, then God doesn't like me much. And if it's not any one of those, if it's not, if it's not uh, the, the fact that, that sometimes um, I think of myself in this way or other people think, uh, maybe it's just a matter of, of culture. Culture is, we, we are a performance-based culture, right? Aren't we? I remember, uh, I think I was a junior in high school, and I went into this school, and I sat down, and they gave me a test. It was called the ACT it was all about my performance. And I had to perform well in order to get what I wanted. Perform well, get what you want. And everything will go well. Some of you know all about performance. Maybe, maybe you had to perform for your parents Maybe in order to, to get what you wanted from your parents, you really had to perform well. Maybe it was on a, a sports field. Maybe it was in academics. Uh, maybe it was in the work environment. Uh, but even today, as you walked in, you thought, man, I need to perform. I, I've got I've to try and please. Uh, maybe, maybe right now in your relationships, you're trying to perform for your spouse or for your friend or, or, or for someone, and, and you are so geared into to performing well that you cannot imagine a God who thinks anything outside a performance. But what if what if God isn't made in our image? Uh, what if God is not tied into what we think about us? That when we ask the question about what God thinks about, when God thinks about us, uh, that, that it's not tied to my behavior, it's not tied to my performance. It's not tied to whether I thought I was good or bad. What if? What if God, when he thinks about us, doesn't think any of that? But here's the thing. I think at some level, all of us in this room are petrified to ask that question. We are, we are scared to ask what God thinks about when he thinks about me because we are sure that as we are sitting here, 
That what God thinks about when he thinks about us is all about our behavior. It's about our performance. It's about how we view us. But what if that's not true? For those of you that are scared to ask that question, can I just simply say this? God loves you. God loves you. God loves you, and there's nothing, no amount of performance, no amount of behavior that's going to allow you to be loved more than you are. And there's nothing that you can perform, nothing that you can do, no amount of, uh, of doing that, that you can do before the creator of the universe that's going to make you love or make him love you less. God loves you. He loves you. And he's not going to stop loving you. Uh, this is a, a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. God loves you that way. And so maybe uh, we need to correct our perspective this morning by looking at Jesus as he answers for us, not how we would ha have, uh, not how we would answer this question, but how God himself already answered it. You see, Jesus is God. And he said, I want to tell you what God thinks about when God thinks about you. You see, Jesus is God found that he enjoyed being around people that were nothing like him. Uh, he liked being around them. And they enjoyed and liked being around him. And he gives us the answer to this bugging question. What is it that God thinks about when God thinks about me? Will you join me? Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. If you have a pew Bible, open it up to page 729. There were two groups of people that, that Jesus encountered. Uh, there were two groups, uh, two types of folks that Jesus always encountered. If you read through the Gospels, uh, there's these two groups of people that were always with Jesus, the, uh, the law abiders and the law breakers. There were the rule followers and the not-so-rule followers. There were those that said and taught others uh, that God only loved good people. And then there was Jesus. Now, here's the thing about these two groups. Both groups had this idea that God only loved them, that God only liked the people that behaved well. Both groups thought this way. So uh, the people uh, that didn't obey the rules, they, they just generally figured that God didn't like them. And those people that did do well, uh, that behaved and, and kept all the rules, uh, they just assumed that God did like them. 
And yet Jesus shows up. And with these two groups of people, we find that Jesus likes the one more than the other. That Jesus, as the God-man, the one claiming to be from God, enjoyed being with ungodly people, uh, and the people that he had most conflict with uh, were the people who said that they were the rule followers. And they couldn't understand why, why this guy, who claimed to be from God, was hanging out with ungodly people. You, you get the picture? And in Luke 15... In Luke 15, both of these groups are present. They're both there, one eager to listen to Jesus and the other not so much. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Those are the, the not-so-rule followers, okay? Uh, they're the people that, uh, that have decided to, to cast off all the rules and all the laws. They, they were the law breakers. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Muttered, muttered, muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were the rule followers, they were the law keepers. They were the ones that did good and knew that God loved them because they did good. And Jesus tells them three parables. Uh, he tells them three parables, uh, three parables all about lostness. Now, I don't have time to walk through every single one of them, uh, but this opening one, the, the parable of the lost coin, uh, there's this gal, and, and she has a very special coin, uh, and, and she loses it, and she, she expands all sorts of energy in order to find it, and when she does, uh, maybe you've heard the story, there's great celebration, woohoo! And then he tells another uh, story. He ramps it up just a, a little bit. The parable of the, of the lost sheep. There's, 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 this, uh, there's this shepherd, and, and, and he's going to go out, and there's 100 sheep, but he notices one is missing, and, and he goes off, and he's, he's definitely going to go find it. And, and what does he do when he finds it? There's a great celebrate. Woohoo! Are, are you with me here? Now, the interesting thing is that as we begin both of these parables, the one in verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. And then verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Uh, this whole beginning is a rhetorical question. Uh, scholars have told us uh, that as... Uh, the writer, Luke, writes, uh, when he does so, when he says, uh, when he enters into a parable, when he enters into a story and begins it like, hey, uh, suppose this happens, it's a rhetorical question in which everybody listening knows the answer. That's a rhetorical question, right? Right? Okay, okay. Whew. That was rhetorical, you see? It's all right, some of you will get it in a minute, okay? 
So he's asking a rhetorical question of which everybody knows the answer. So the both groups on both sides, uh, those who are rule followers and those who aren't, uh, those who are tax collectors and sinners and those who are Pharisees and teachers, all come to these first two parables and and, and their response is, "Uh uh-huh, yep, yep, that's right, that's right, Jesus, that's right. Everybody would do that, that's right. There would be great celebration if this happened. We would all do that. It's the setup. And then Jesus tells a parable. And I know that many of our Bibles say the parable, parable of the prodigal son. This is, that's not a very good title. Actually, there's two sons for two groups. And there's a father. You see, there's an older brother and a younger brother. And the younger brother does something that that nobody in the audience would have imagined ever having been asked, ever. He's like, Dad, um, can, can I have my inheritance? No, 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 like, not when you die, like now. Uh, the younger son would get a third of the inheritance. The older brother would get two-thirds because he, was, uh, he would have to kind of run the ranch, you know, and uh, take care of mom and pa in their old age. And uh, so the younger brother's like, give me a third. I want my money. And, and really what he's saying is, Dad, you know what? You're getting old, but I sure wish you'd die. You know, every time I see anything about the royal family... I wonder if this is how Charles feels. <laughs> You're still here. But it was kind of like that. I mean, imagine. You were, you're not dead yet. I want my money. Now, now going on in the background is it's like this large etiquette. I mean, it has been written down and documented uh, that for those that would even dare treat their father with such disrespect, they could be legally jailed for such a request. Uh, Some documents even say uh, that a son who treated the father with this kind of disrespect could be killed. Right? Like, Like all the tax collectors, all the sinners, all the people that don't follow the rules, all of them are looking at the younger brother going, whoa, (laughs) dude. Did you just ask for that? I mean, I mean they're, they're, they're talking to each other going, can you, can you believe that? Nobody. My dad would have killed me right there. And then the crazy thing that nobody saw coming comes out of Jesus' mouth. The Father does it. 
However it happens, however he needs to sell off his flocks and, and, and maybe, maybe rent out some ground or, 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 or part, with, part with some oxen or, or sell some grain or however it needed to happen, like, like the dad does it. Uh, this thing that, that could have been imprisonable, this thing uh, that, that could have meant death, uh, the dad uh, almost nonchalantly in the text goes, okay. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided up his property between them. And he doesn't even stick around. Take the money and run, right? And that's exactly what he does. He's like, all right, peace out, I'm out, see ya. And he leaves. And the text doesn't tell us exactly all the things that happens. All it says is there he squandered his wealth and wild living. Now, we can let our minds run amok uh, with exactly what happened with all of the wealth. But what we do know is it's gone. It's gone on cars. It's gone on women. It's gone on condos. It's gone on parties. It's who knows what it's gone on, but it is definitely gone. He comes on hard times. There's a famine in the land, and he is in trouble. I think, well, should probably get a job. But for some reason, he's in a foreign land, so all the foreigners are going to protect themselves. They're going, to, they're going to look out for their own, and he's not from us, and he throws a great party, but sorry, dude, uh, i gotta, I got to take care of my own. Now, slip your Jewish hat on, okay? Here's the job that he can get. You can go and raise some pigs. pigs. Now, now, this is why I ask you to put your Jewish hats on. If you are Jewish, this is a problem. Okay, you, you don't eat bacon, and you certainly do not raise pigs. In fact, uh, there's a, a, an ancient commentary. It's called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah would say that if you raise pigs, you're, you're basically cursed that you are condemned from the community. Like this is something that you just don't do. And there he is, a pig farmer. He's got no money, got no place to go, and he's hungry. Now, I've never been around pigs, okay? But some of you have been. <laughs> The closest thing that I can think of that pigs eat is not pleasant. Like this image, anybody see that old Charlotte's Web cartoon when that little rat and they, and they dump all the stuff in the trough for the pigs to eat? And the, and the boy, the, the younger brother, is looking into the trough going, hmm. I could have myself some of that. And the text says he comes 
to his senses. He like wakes up and goes, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's in, in that time where, where he's just sitting down and he, and he is He's thinking about his stomach, and he's thinking about where he is, and he's thinking about his past, and he's thinking about all the money that he squandered, and he sits down, and he really starts to contemplate, and he starts to feel this this emotion, uh, and he's thinking, this is dumb. What, What am I doing here? I've got to make a different choice. And so he says, he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back to dad. Uh, look, look with me in verse 17, would you? When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my dad, my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he gets up and he goes to his father. Have you ever had conversations like that? You've been caught in maybe a cycle of sin or, or, or something's been happening in your life and you sit down and you really begin to contemplate and, and there's lots of anxiety going on and you really can't think about anything else. And the thing that you're thinking is, okay, I'm just going to go back. I, I've got to do something. But, but I, know, uh, that, I know that dad's not going to be happy to see me. I know that when I go back and I walk in that door... It's not going to be friendly. I know that I can't ever be a son again. Do you hear what's happening? The son is preparing a speech by making his father in his own image. Do you see that? He assumes the worst. Uh, He assumes that that when he comes back, things are going to be really, really bad. God, uh, Father, I have have sinned against heaven and against you. Uh, I know that I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired hands. Just just make me one of the, the crew and I'll be happy. This is like the worst. This this is the lowest of the low. I mean, all all the tax collectors, all the sinners, all right, they they know who they are in the story already. Oh, yeah, that's me. We've been in this series, Great Reversal. You cannot imagine what comes next. Like the whole thing shifts, it turns in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine. Like no one in the crowd anticipates what Jesus is going to say next. Look with me, would you? Verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kisses him. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Father runs to him and throws his arms of compassion. No, 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 wait. This is out of order, don't you think? And the son hasn't even said anything yet. Doesn't he have to behave a while? Doesn't he have to give his confession? Doesn't he have to tell the father how, how bad he's been? No, he just says, the father had compassion and he run, runs to him and he throws his arms around him and the son uh, has this prepared speech. It's in his pocket, verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be worthy of called your, being called your son. I love, I love it. After, he, after all of that, but the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet. You, you see, the son comes out and, and he is thinking what you and I think when God thinks about us. He's thinking, oh, well, I got to behave, I got to be, perform, I got to do the right things because I know God thinks of me, what I must think about me. I know that God must think what other people think, and I know uh, that my performance hasn't been good enough, so God, uh, let me just perform right here. And, and you notice that even though he breaks out his speech, it's almost as if the father was never listening. The assumption by the son was that he couldn't be a son anymore. The assumption by the father was that he was never anything less than a son. Let me ask you this. What's your worst moment? I mean, what's the worst moment of your life? What is your most shameful thing? What is like the lowest of the low for you? What is the darkness of the cellar? What's the dungeon look like for you in regards to your behavior, in regards to your performance, in regards to how you have looked at you, how others have looked at you, and your performance in the cool? What is the absolute basement? The Father treats him as a son. He comes and he wraps his arms around him. And he doesn't say, now we're going to talk about what you've done. Doesn't say, well, now, you know, now that you've come back, we're going to have to set up some rules. He doesn't come back and say, uh, now, you're going to have to you're going to have to go through some protocol here because we're not really quite sure why you have come back and if we can trust you and if, you're, if this is really a change or you're just desperate. He graciously reverses all the expectations and he gives him a robe, a ring, and some sandals to say, I always thought of you as my son. And then he kills the fattened calf. 
You know that calf that we've been waiting for, the calf that, that was for the big wedding, the calf that was, that was going to be for the graduation ceremony, uh, the calf that was going to be for the dad's retirement party, that calf. He goes out and he says, it's celebration time. Because the son that was dead to me is alive, he was lost and now he's found. I wonder... I wonder what you think about when you think about what God thinks about you. I wonder if like this, uh, this younger son that you have this propensity to think uh, that God must think about you the way you think about you, what others think about you, what culture says about you. And you think all of that is tied to your behavior and to your performance. And it seems to me that in this story, God is saying, no. Doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or who you've been with. God cannot love you more or less based on your performance. He takes that away. He takes that off the table. Now, there's another brother in this story. Because there's two groups of people, remember? There's those uh, who are uh, law-abiders and, and non-law-abiders. There's those, those who uh, break rules and those who follow rules. And, and, and the next one is uh, those who break rules, or the, rather those who follow the rules. There, there's an older brother to this story. And he comes up to the house, and there's this great celebration going on, and everybody's having a good time. And he calls one of his servants over, and he says, hey, uh, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, you know, the, he's probably shuffling, shuffling around in the dirt. Well, I don't really want to tell you. No, no, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I mean, there's a celebration. What's happening? Um, your brother? Yeah, he's back. And they killed the cat, fattened calf. Oh, can, you, can you start to see the smoke? roll out of his ears. Have you ever been there? Like you're so mad, you're like, I'm not, I'm not going in there. There's no way. I'm. And have you been by yourself and you just, you allow your thoughts to be boiled in anger outside and you're just, you're thinking to yourself, you're so filled with anger and angst. You're like, and the more you think about it, the more angry you become. That, that's this scene. That's what's going on in this older brother's mind. You know that younger brother's speech? Oh, the older brother's got a speech too. And he's been out there and he's been boiling this. He's been thinking it through in his mind over and over and over again. Oh, I can't wait till I see dad. Look at verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out. And pleaded with him. Notice that, that God or the Father goes out for both brothers, doesn't he? But he answered, look, all these years I've been slaving. I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, oh, it's not my brother. 
the son of yours. I know sometimes uh, when my kids are especially kids, that I might say something, hypothetically, to my bride, and I'll say, your kids. And this brother does this, this son of yours. He squandered property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. I mean, this was like he's insulting the dad. Now, do you notice what he bases this whole thing on? I have behaved. I have performed. I have done. I have been good. I have followed the rules. I have done the law. And you didn't even give me a goat. Pharisees now know who they are in the story. And this is hard for some of us, isn't it? Because maybe some of us are rule followers. And we know all about obedience and following rules. And we with the Pharisees look at this and go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, that's how we feel. We, that's how we feel with things. We don't understand why you like people that don't like God. How is it that you can say you're godly when you hang out with ungodly people? I want you to hear what the Father says. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now we might anticipate that the father would say something like, uh, uh, my son, you've always obeyed me. But he doesn't. He says, you've always been with me. I wonder, when we think about what God thinks about when he, God thinks about me. If being with God trumps doing, is it possible that God, that God likes you, that God loves you, and that it doesn't have anything to do with your performance. Anything to do with your behavior. Anything to do with how smart or great or wonderful you are when it comes to knowing the Bible. Uh, can I ask this question? Uh, which son do you think God loves more in the story? Which son does he love more in the story? Both of them are hopeless. And he loves them both. 
Maybe you need a different example. Who do you think God loves more, me or you? Now, can I remind you that I'm a a rule follower? I've been to Bible college after all. I've not even just been to Bible college. I'm a Bible college professor. That, that, that like, means something. I've, like, read the Bible. I know Greek and Hebrew. I, I teach it, actually. I have, like, degrees behind my name. Did you know that? And they're all about Bible stuff. Uh, did you know that I'm, I'm working on a doctorate in preaching so I can get better at this? So, so what do you think? So what do you think? <laughs> amen? <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that amen. <laughs> amen, my guys. Who do you think God loves more? Me or you? If you have a tendency even to think that God might love me more because I know some stuff and I've been some places and I've done some things, then perhaps your heart has has a kernel of judgment in it that needs to be removed. Because God loves both sons. He goes out to them both. He listens to them both. He embraces them both. He wants both of them to be with him. You see, if you think that God loves me more than you, or if God loves the older son more than the younger son, or the younger son more than the older son, uh, then, then, then you've missed it. If you think God loves one more than the other, then, then I hope that I die soon because, because the older I get, the more sin I will have. Like if we were really thinking about this, if God loves people uh, based on their performance about what they do, then we should all hopefully die early rather than die late because we have a whole lot of sin in the middle. I'm 39 years old. I've done some sinning. Some of you are like 80 years old. If you're 80, you've done 80 years worth of sinning. And if you're saying that God loves us because we behave or because we don't. That if we create God in our own image and, and he, he bases his love and like for us on what we've done or not done, then you better just hope that you die now. How is it What is it that God thinks of when God thinks about you? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you when you've done great things, and he loves you when you've not done great things. 
He peers into your life in the basement and he peers in your life when you're standing on the mountain. And he says, I love you. And this is not what we anticipate. This is great reversal. This is grace. We sing about it. We preach about it. I guess my challenge for you as you walk out of here is that you actually believe it. That actually you begin to live like that God loves you no matter what. And maybe this actually begins to change your life. Maybe you actually begin to look at other people, whoever they might be, whether they behave well or whether they don't behave well, and you think to yourself, man, you know what? I know uh, that God's love for them is the same for God's love for me. Because I know what God thinks about when God thinks about me. And he loves me. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness. We love you. Help us to, to search our hearts and our minds to be more like you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.